Hi everyone. I hope that you're well and that you've had a good week. We come today to the last in our sermon series through the book of First Peter. It's been quite a journey. I see from my files that we started the series back in May last year, and we've had just over 25 studies in this little book. And I'm so sad to leave it. I think that Peter dealt with a number of themes that are so very important for us in the time and situation in which we find ourselves at present. Uncharacteristically for me, I want to handle a fairly large chunk of the last chapter, which seemingly deals with a number of disparate topics. It's almost as if Peter were firing off a whole lot of short commands as he comes to the end of his piece of papyrus, uh, like when a mom writes to her daughter at university and ends a letter by giving a few short, sharp commands. Don't forget to charge your phone each night. Don't forget to top up the electricity. Please call your grandmother. She hasn't heard from you in weeks. Although Peter seems to be dealing with a variety of different subjects, I think we'll see that there are a number of threads that hold these themes together in a logical order. Let's have a look. First Peter chapter 5, verses 5 to 14. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because... God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power for ever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are various different ways of considering these verses, but the theme that I would like to look at in this passage is winning over worry or casting anxiety rather than carrying it. Let me make one important observation right up front, though. Peter famously says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And I think it's important to recognize that for many years, decades, centuries even, the word anxiety was a synonym for worry and care. Recently, however, anxiety is a label that has been given to a group of recognizable, diagnosable medical conditions – 
These conditions have existed from earliest times, but from around 1980 onwards, various medical conditions have been categorized under the heading anxiety disorders. So that when someone says, I have anxiety, they may in fact mean that they've been diagnosed with something like generalized anxiety disorder, rather than that they are feeling a little bit worried. I think it's important to mention that for two reasons. Firstly, there may be some people listening to this who have been diagnosed with an anxiety or other disorder, and a sermon about casting your anxiety on God causes more anxiety. You feel guilty that you can't overcome your anxiety. You feel a sense of failure for not obeying the clear command of Scripture. Let me reassure you. I don't want to make you feel guilty about not overcoming anxiety any more than I would want to make a diabetic feel guilty about not overcoming diabetes. There are physiological factors behind what you experience, and there are medications that a doctor will prescribe to restore the chemical balance in your brain. I believe that God's word today will be helpful to you, as it is to all of us, but I don't believe that one has to feel guilt over taking medication for anxiety any more than one would feel guilt for taking medication for diabetes or high blood pressure. And secondly, there may be some people listening to this who have anxiety disorders or even other psychiatric disorders and don't even realize it. And I'm not a doctor, but if you are experiencing physical or emotional symptoms that are unusual for you, like disturbances in your eating or sleeping patterns, unusual feelings, I do want to encourage you to chat to your doctor. Your feelings may well have a physiological cause rather than being simply a lack of faith. But anyway, as we move into these verses, please understand that I'm speaking about anxiety in the sense of worry and fretting. And how many of us don't find ourselves in that position at the moment? There is a great deal for us to worry about. Any time a family member coughs or complains of not feeling well, we worry. We worry about going to the shops. Will it be busy? Will, be, will there be a lot of people around me? We worry about our work. Will we even continue to have employment in this year? There is a great deal of worrying and fretting that takes place at the moment. And perhaps there are times late at night when that sense of worry becomes overwhelming. How do we win over worry? I believe that there are at least four things in this passage, and these aren't quick steps, just tick these off and you'll be okay. No, these are trees that we need to plant in our lives and nurture and water and cultivate so that they grow more and more. Firstly, we win over worry by humbling ourselves. From verse 5. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Peter mentions two types of humility in these verses. Uh, humility in relation to one another, and humility in relation to God. And there is the closest possible link between the two. 
we're going to focus more intently on humility in relation to God. But let's start where Peter starts, with humility toward one another. Verse 5 is actually a continuation of Peter's instructions to elders that we looked at last time. Having spoken to elders about how they are to shepherd God's flock, Peter now turns to the others in the church, the younger men in particular, urging them to help the elders in their work by being submissive to them. This is not just a care and respect for the aged, although that's an important biblical theme. Rather, Peter is encouraging those who are younger in the faith to respect and submit to those who have faithfully followed Christ for a lot longer. But Peter's instructions are not just limited to young men. He says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. The Greek word that Peter uses here for clothe is only used here in the New Testament, and we're not 100% sure, but it's possible that Peter is making a reference here to the Lord Jesus, who on the night before his death took a bowl and clothed himself with a towel and washed his disciples' feet. Or in the words of Philippians chapter 2, made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant. The best description of humility in our relationships with others is described in that very same chapter, Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Archbishop William Temple defined humility in this way. He said, Humility does not mean thinking less of yourself than of other people, nor does it mean having a low opinion of your own gifts, it means freedom from thinking about yourself one way or the other. As one Bible commentator puts it, Christian humility is realism that recognizes grace. Paul declares, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? The Christian knows that he did not make himself or save himself his humility springs from his total dependence on the grace of God. And this brings us to the second and more primary humility that Peter urges on us, and that is humility in relation to God. You see, genuine humility toward others can only come out of a fundamental attitude of humility before God. Look at verse 5 again. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That is quite a sobering statement. Peter's quoting Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34 here. Pride blocks the grace of God. Pride refuses the grace of God. Pride prevents us from coming to God, because we think that we can handle life on our own. Jesus gave a very good example of this phenomenon. In Luke chapter 18, we read, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. 
Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In verse 10, Peter describes God as the God of all grace. There is no other source of grace in the universe. And yet, you have grace only to the degree that you have dealt with pride. C.S. Lewis once pointed out that it's possible for God to want to give us grace, but not to be able to do so, because our hands are full. And whenever we think that we're doing okay, that we don't need God's help because we're clever enough or strong enough or even good enough, we forfeit the grace that could be ours. Humility is the attitude with which we approach God for the very first time. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But we must never think that we start with humility and then kind of graduate on from there to triumphalism. No, humility is to continually characterize our lives as Christians. Let me perhaps clarify what I am not saying here. Tony Campolo is an American pastor, and he tells how when he was at Bible college, one of his professors always began by asking one of the students to open in prayer. And One day Tony was asked to pray, and so he began, Father God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your goodness to us. Most of all, I thank you that you could love a worthless person like me. And at that moment, the professor shouted, Hold it! Hold it! Right in the middle of the prayer. He said, Mr. Campolo, you are not worthless. You are unworthy. You used the wrong word. You can continue with your prayer. We're not worthless, but we are unworthy. And we are also unable in our own strength. I think it's significant that Peter says that we're to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Here is the key to winning over worry. I recognize that God is in control of the universe. On the macro level, he holds in his hand the hundred billion stars in our galaxy and the hundred billion galaxies in our universe. And on the micro level, he holds together the atoms that make up everything I can see and all that I cannot even see as well. When I recognize the omnipotence of Almighty God and I humble myself under his mighty hand and recognize that he is God and that he knows what he's doing, even though I don't see or understand it, then I can be free from anxiety. Pride causes anxiety. Because it's all up to me. And what if I fail? Humility before an all-powerful and all-loving God decreases anxiety. I can be still and know that he is God. Secondly, we win over worry by keeping an eternal perspective. In verse 6, Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. 
Now, we often take that to mean that after a bit of humiliation, perhaps over months or years, then we will have a time of God lifting us up and exalting us. And while I'm sure that in some sense that may be true, this phrase, due time, more likely refers to the due time of Christ's return. The due time, then, would be the same as that which is described in verses 10 and 11. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. Notice in this verse a very important contrast between two phrases that Peter uses. On the one hand, there is the little while, after you've suffered a little while. And on the other hand, there is eternal glory. And we need to keep those two phrases in mind. We need to keep an eternal perspective, not just to focus on the 80 or so years that we have here, but the billions of years we will have in eternity. Paul says the same thing in Second Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Again then, Peter is urging us to do what he said back in chapter 1 and verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. If we want to win over worry, then we need to keep reminding ourselves of eternity. At the moment, I have to keep on reminding myself, look, even if this week I remain healthy and don't end up on a ventilator, there will come a day, maybe next month, maybe in 30 years' time, but there will be a day when I am put on a ventilator and I will die and I will enter eternity. And that eternal perspective, I believe, changes everything. It changes our priorities. It changes our anxieties. It even changes what we otherwise may have considered tragedies. Now, perhaps it's just me, but it does concern me when I hear Christians praying for other Christians to be healed, not merely with passion and intensity, but with almost a frenzy and an alarm and, quite frankly, anxiety. Of course, it's awful when a young person dies. Of course, it's horrible when a husband of three young children contracts cancer and within a few months is dead. But for a believer, is that a tragedy? Is it the end of the world? What about the perspective of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Please don't misunderstand me. I don't want to be cruel or callous or unfeeling or unhelpful or judgmental or even unbelieving. I'm just concerned that if one focuses only on the end goal of healing, then one may miss out on what God is achieving through the process of illness, whether that process ends in healing or in death. Of course we can come before our loving Heavenly Father and ask Him for His healing touch. We can call the elders and ask them to anoint us with oil, but we can do so without demanding and without commanding, without desperation. 
we can seek to discern what God is achieving through this difficult situation, even as we pray to be delivered from it. I rejoice that there are members of our congregation who've recovered from COVID-19. But where others have died, where we've prayed for healing and that has not taken place, that's not second best, according to all that we've seen in First Peter. This is still an answer to prayer, even though I don't understand the answer, or even like the answer, or grieve terribly over the answer. It's precisely in those times that I hold on to the promise that we've just read. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. God is doing something even in this tragedy. Hasn't that been one of the main things that Peter has taught us all through this letter? We need to maintain an eternal perspective. Jess Moody is a pastor in America. And he tells the story of a couple in his church called Carl and Dorcas Everly, who weren't just church members, but really became good friends. They had children of similar ages. They got together for play dates and meals. One day, Carl phoned Jess at work and said, We've just found out that Dorcas has stage four cancer and only has a matter of weeks to live. Jess says he drove to the hospital not knowing what to say. And when he got to the ward, Dorcas spoke to him and reminded him of what he'd once said in a sermon. She said, you quoted Second Peter, where Peter says to the Lord, a thousand years is like a day and a day like a thousand years. Well, I've been doing some maths. And if a day is like a thousand years, then an hour is 40 years. I'll be leaving Carl and the children soon. He'll probably live another 40 years, and I'll be in heaven when he arrives, and I'll say, Carl, where have you been? I haven't seen you for an hour. Did you drive out to your dad's farm? The children will live maybe another 80 years. That'll be two hours for me. I'll greet them and hug them and say, kids, how was school today? When you're gone from me for two hours, I wonder how things are with you. Moms don't like to be away from their children for too long. Jess writes that Dorcas died And at the funeral, her husband came to him and said that just before she died, she said, Carl, I love you. Take care of the kids. I'll see you in an hour. An eternal perspective. Thirdly, we can win over worry by standing firm in the faith. Peter writes in verse 8, Be self-controlled and alert, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. We looked at something of the character of the devil a couple of weeks back, so I won't repeat all of that here. But notice that one of the ways in which Peter says we can resist him is by standing firm in the faith. And part of standing firm in the faith includes being self-controlled and alert, literally sober-minded and alert. It's important for me to use my mind to think carefully and earnestly and seriously about my faith. The word alert can refer to watchfulness, which again is most often used in relation to watching and being ready for the return of Christ. And Peter repeats this idea of standing firm in his final greeting in verse 12, 
With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. What is the true grace of which he speaks, in which we are to stand? Well, in the context, Peter must be referring back to his entire letter. This letter and its message are the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And that would include the vitally important truth that these various trials that Peter's readers are experiencing, persecution, abuse, misunderstanding, have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Part of the true grace of God is knowing that God is working in all circumstances. So an important part of overcoming worry in our lives is talking to ourselves about the truths of the gospel. In these verses, Peter speaks about your enemy, the devil. Literally, the word is adversary. And it's used in a legal sense. It refers to an opponent at law. Elsewhere in the Bible, he is called Satan, the accuser. There's a very good picture of what he does in the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. In chapter 3, Zechariah has a vision of Joshua, who is the first high priest after the Israelites have returned from exile. As a nation, they've sinned and rebelled against God and have been punished by God. They're feeling guilty and sinful. And we read this. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan, the accuser, standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. This passage reminds me of that famous hymn that we sometimes sing. When Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the Judge is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. When I'm bowed down with worry and concern and the accuser is pointing out the sin that is there, I remind myself of the truth of all the other things I believe. Jesus loves me. Jesus died for me. My righteousness doesn't depend on what I have done, but on the finished work of Jesus Christ. We stand firm in the faith. The fourth way of winning over worry is through fellowship. Verse 9. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Have you ever seen lions hunting? What is one of their key strategies? It's to separate an individual from the herd and to then run down that individual. When the herd is together, they're all strong. But once an individual is on their own, they're vulnerable to being taken out. 
we need Christian fellowship. We see an example of this fellowship in the life of Peter himself in the final verses of the letter. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you. She who is in Babylon, he seems to be referring to the church in Rome, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. You see, we need one another. We've just seen how we win over worry by standing firm in the faith, but we need one another in order to affirm that faith to one another. We need others who will affirm that the things we believe are indeed true. We need others to remind us of aspects of the faith which we have forgotten or to explain parts of the faith that we didn't even know about. We've seen how we win over worry by keeping an eternal perspective and we need others who will affirm that same perspective. You see, we spend so much time in a world that does not share our faith and does not share our perspective. Our colleagues at work, maybe some of our family members, our media, our television programs have a very different perspective. And so we need regular doses of reality therapy. That's what Bible studies and church services do. They give us reality therapy each week to help us see how things truly are. Again, this is so difficult at the moment. This is one of the things that we're really craving at present, an opportunity to be together and worship together and share together and pray together. And so I would urge you, whether you're anxious or not, to get into community with other people, even if that's simply a weekly phone call with someone or a socially distanced walk or a safe meetup outdoors, it's important for us to meet with one another and proclaim the truths of our faith. So we win over worry by humbling ourselves, by keeping an eternal perspective, by standing firm in the faith, and by fellowship with others. And out of that, Peter says that we cast our anxiety on him, knowing that he cares for us. Some translations make that contrast clearer by saying, cast all your care on him, because he cares for you. One pastor suggests that we do this practically by not allowing worry to live on the periphery of our lives. We often go through the day and worry is always there around the edges. No, no matter what we're doing, it's there. To cast our anxiety on God, though, means taking it from the edges and placing it at the center of our thoughts for a few minutes. We focus directly on what it is that is worrying us, and we make a conscious decision to hand it over to God. Now, we are all only human, and so we may need to do this a number of times. But we do so in humility, knowing that he is God. We do so keeping eternity in mind, that God does indeed work in all things for the good of those who love him. We bring our worries and the truth of our faith together before God, and we allow our faith to speak to our worry. And we do all this together with others. We tell others what is going on in our lives, and we speak to one another, and we pray for one another 
so that we have the courage and the strength to keep on going. And above all, we do so knowing that God cares for us, that he loves us. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? May God enable you to win over worry in this week that lies ahead. Amen.